Hello, and welcome to World of Warbirds. I'm Brian Pierce. Are you a World of Warbirds fan? If so, you can help me keep this podcast going by supporting it, either through PayPal at World of Warbirds B17, that's at W-O-W-B-17, or by giving the podcast a good review or liking and sharing the Facebook page. And that same Facebook page is where you go to see the various images of the aircraft described today. Today's episode is brought to you by Warbirds supporter Wilhelm Strell from over in Germany. I do thank him for his support, and I do apologize beforehand for any butchery of the language. To tell you the truth, I've been avoiding this one. Not because I'm not a fan of this particular warbird, but because I haven't been able to find the hook. Loyal listeners will know that there's always a theme or hook that supports an episode. For example, this plane was a dud for this country, but they exported it to another country and they loved it, the P-39. These planes started off the war great, but then got long in the tooth quickly. The Hurricane, the Warhawk, the Zero... These planes are presently unappreciated, but they actually did more than we all thought they had. The OS-2U Kingfisher, Victor's Wellington, Short Sunderland. These planes were designed for one thing, but then ended up doing everything. B-25, HE-111. Some episodes look more at the designer, and the story ends up flowing through them, and the aircraft follows in formation, you might say. The BF-109, the Dewantin D-520, the Machi C-202 Fogore, they were all like that. Then there's the fascinating stories of the changing one thing of a loser aircraft, like the Avro Manchester changing to Merlins, and adding two, and then you get a winner, like the Lancaster. And then there's the FW-190. Where's the hook? It was pretty much a winner at the start and stayed a winner with upgrades throughout the war. It somewhat played second fiddle to the 109 in terms of fame, but it was probably a better plane. The designer Kurt Tank, perhaps is less well known as Willy Messerschmitt, but he was a solid, uncontroversial engineer throughout his entire career, the plane did end up doing many roles from fighter, interceptor, fighter-bomber, and even night fighter. Anyway, unlike many of my episodes, I'm just going to have to dive into this one and see what we discover. Design and Development Let's start with the designer of the FW-190, Kurt Valdemar Tank. He was born on the 24th of February, 1898. Before we move on, can we just acknowledge what a kick-ass name Kurt Tank is? I don't know if it works better as a wrestler's name, a movie action hero, or a comic book character, but it really is an amazing name, and I'm sorry for the digression. When the First World War broke out, Tank had already had an interest in aviation and wanted to join the Die Fliegertruppen der Deutsche Kaiserreich, the Imperial German Flying Corps. However, both his grandfather and father had been in the cavalry, 
And so Tank was convinced to follow in their hoofprints, as you might say, and he joined the cavalry also. He finished the war as a highly decorated captain and immediately enrolled in the Technical University of Berlin in order to get back on track to his original passion, airplanes. He earned his pilot's license and so became a real rarity, an aircraft designer who could also test fly the airplanes he built. He then worked for a variety of companies, including one year with Willie Messerschmitt's company, but left in 1931 to become the design director and head of flight testing for Fuckerwolf in Bremen. He designed two highly successful training aircraft, the FW-44 and the FW-56. These were commercially successful because... Let's just say there was a lot of demand for new pilots in mid-1930s Germany. In 1934, Tank designed the FW-159, which was entered in the competition for Germany's new fighter aircraft. He was competing against the Arado AR-80, the Henkel HE-112, and the Messerschmitt BF-109. Unfortunately for him, the FW-159 was pretty much a disaster, and you could pretty much just tell by looking at it. The main fuselage didn't look too bad. It kind of looked like a BF-109 body, but it was attached to a basically a Cessna 172 type wing. You know, with the struts and everything. This caused a lot of drag. It also had a fragile and overly complicated landing gear and it basically finished last in the competition. Of course, the 109 got the contract. But Tank dusted himself off, took a break from fighters, and designed the FW-200 Condor, which started out as an airliner and ended up being a maritime patrol bomber. One day the Condor will be featured in this podcast... Either it'll have its own episode, or I've been thinking about an episode on citizen soldiers warbirds, those that started off as civilian aircraft and then were recruited to fight. And the Condor would fit right in there, along with the Lockheed Constellation, the C-47, and others. Only a year later, the Reichsluftfahrtministerium or the German Ministry of Aviation, abbreviated RLM, in autumn 1937 sent out a new request for another fighter to support the BF-109, as there was a worry that the BF-109 might be quickly outclassed by fighters from other nations. Such was the speed of aeronautical aviation at that time. Initial designs were rejected before they got very far, and so Tank decided that a whole new design philosophy was required. As an old cavalryman, he looked at the BF-109, or the Supermarine Spitfire, and decided that these two machines were like racehorses. They were the result of the mating of the largest possible engines to the lightest possible airframes. The resulting racehorses would perform well under pampered conditions. But Tank had seen horses under combat conditions, and he knew that racehorses wouldn't last long at the front. Tank said, open quotes, During World War I, I served in the cavalry and in the infantry. 
I had seen the harsh conditions under which military equipment had to work in wartime. I felt sure that a quite different breed of fighter would also have a place in any future conflict. One that could operate from ill-prepared frontline airfields. One that could be flown and maintained by men who had received only short training. And one that could absorb a reasonable amount of battle damage and still get back. Close quotes. This was the battleground thinking behind the Fucka Wolf 190. It was not to be a racehorse, but a Dientfeld, a cavalry horse. Another design decision that would be far-reaching was that Tank decided to use a radial engine instead of an inline one. At the time, there was some prejudice against using radial engines in fighter aircraft, and for good reason. A streamlined inline engine can present much less frontal area to the oncoming airflow and thus produce much less drag. I mean, just look at any radial engine and you can see that shoving that flat, circular hunk of metal through the air is going to be more difficult than a sleek inline engine. If you're not sure what I'm talking about when I'm talking about uh, radial or inline engines, this would be a good time to encourage you to check out my episode Cylinders, the quest for power, if you haven't already. But Tank had three justifications going for him to make the decision to switch to radials. First, he had the studies by NACA in the USA in the 1920s. The NACA, or National Advisory Committee for Aeronautics, was the precursor to NASA and was tasked with undertaking, promoting, and institutionalizing aeronautical research. Interestingly enough, during its existence, the organization was pronounced as an initialism, meaning as each individual letter, N-A-C-A. However, when it was replaced by NASA in 1958, people then assumed that it had been pronounced NACA, and now both pronunciations are considered correct but at least now you know why. My, we're having a lot of diversions on this episode. These studies had led to what was known as the NACA cowling. This was a specially designed covering for the motor that actually consisted of a symmetrical circular airfoil that is wrapped around the engine. It not only smooths the airflow, like any cowling, but also, as it is an airfoil, generates lift in the forward direction counteracting drag. It also causes air to be sucked through the cowl, having the very positive side effect of keeping the cold, fast-moving air on the cylinder heads where it is most needed. Lastly, the NACA cowling would control and reduce the turbulence of the air going through the cylinders. Adding up all these effects and drag is reduced by almost 60%, Secondly, Tank could point to the U.S. Navy, which had a prejudice against perceived finicky liquid-cooled engines and was almost exclusively operating radial-powered aircraft. And lastly, Tank realized that using an alternate engine to the liquid-cooled inverted V-12 Daimler-Benz DB601 would get him out of having to stand in line with his hat in his hand to compete for this, albeit formidable, 
but already scarce and in-demand engine. DB601s were needed to power the Dornier DO215, the Messerschmitt BF109, and 110, and others. So, Tank chose BMW's 139 radial engine and got to work designing his Den Dienstpferd, or cavalry horse. So, a cavalry horse needs good legs, right? Tank had already had issues with landing gear back with the failure of the FW-159. So for the new fighter, he wanted a strong, beefy undercarriage. He over-engineered the gear, giving it double the strength factor usually required, perfect for rough landing strips and less than perfectly trained pilots slamming it down after a hard mission. He also made the gear inwards retracting and wide tracked, which would be much more forgiving for ground handling, especially when compared to its companion in arms, the BF-109, which had a narrow gear and were notorious for ground loops. To deliver snappy control and to reduce the amount of field maintenance and adjustment required, the new fighter was to be fitted with pushrod controls, which eliminated the control sloppiness and play that exists in aircraft with cable controls. There was a concerted effort to reduce pilot workload and allow him to do his main job using the aircraft as a fighter weapon. Care was taken in balancing and lightening the controls to make flying this aircraft much less of an exhausting chore. Features were to be built in to reduce the amount of trimming that had to be done as the aircraft went from one speed and flight configuration to another. The elevator trim was electrical, as were many of the systems of the aircraft. After experimenting with hydraulic systems also, Tank determined that electrically powered systems were more reliable and robust than hydraulic lines. Wires were much less prone to damage from enemy fire than leak-prone hydraulic systems. The landing gear would be raised and lowered by electrical motors in the wings, and it was locked in position by electrical stops. The guns were also to be loaded and fired electrically. It was time to start building the new fighter, which received the designation FW-190. Prototypes The first two prototypes were powered by the planned BMW 139 14-cylinder two-row radial engine, and the very first 190 with the civilian registration D-OPZE took to the air on 1st of June 1939. Immediately there were cooling problems with the engine, which didn't bode well for Tank's gamble on using a radial which really had been designed for use in bombers and transport aircraft and not fighters. Tank proposed installing an engine-driven fan behind an oversized hollow prop spinner with a hole at the extreme front, blowing air over the engine cylinders, with some of it being diverted through ducting over an oil-cooling radiator. BMW one-upped his idea by deciding to build a whole new engine with Tank's proposals, installing from the get-go instead of being jury-rigged on an engine that was already perhaps becoming dated. The result was the BMW 801. 
Improvements were made using sodium-cooled valves and a direct fuel injection system was also added. It had a single-stage, two-speed supercharger, which wouldn't be great for high altitude, but would be well-suited to medium altitudes. At this point in the development of reciprocating aero engines, many control refinements were added in order to squeeze every little bit of horsepower out of the fuel going into them. These included adjusting mixture, boost pressure, supercharger gearing, chemical supercharging, water injection, fuel flow, and spark controls. To return to Tank's horse analogy, all of this would be fine for a racehorse, with only one thing to do but go fast. But all this workload would also get in the way of perhaps a green pilot trying to shoot and not get shot. What if there was a way to automate some of that? Well, someone was trying to find a way, and this someone was a BMW engineer called Henrik Liebach. He came up with a device, an electromechanical hydraulic analog computer that would be fed with various inputs, including air pressure, temperature, and would mainly manage the engine and its subsystems. It was known as the Commandogarat, which means command device. It had about 30 inputs and outputs and would relieve the pilot of having to regulate fuel flow, propeller pitch, supercharger setting, timing, and oil cooling duct flaps. The only thing he'd have left to control was the throttle. The results were good, and reports from the time stated that pilots indeed had an easier time flying the FW-190 due to the Commandogarat helping out with engine management. Of course, everything in aviation is a compromise. With so much being automatically controlled, boost and mixture could not be manually tinkered with to deliver maximum range when cruising. This led to one complaint of high fuel consumption. Another was that it was a very complicated unit, which meant that, unlike the rest of the fighter, it would be very difficult to fix and adjust in the field. And if it wasn't adjusted just right, it was prone to surging, which made formation flying even more difficult. Lastly, battle damage could lead to a complete loss of engine control, which was, you know, bad. With the Commandogarat helping to manage the engine, the pilot could focus on fighting, and for that, this Wolf had serious teeth. There were two guns in the fuselage, and two in the wing roots. These weapons were synchronized with the prop, as they would be firing through the disc. In the wings were two more guns, but these could fire freely, as they were outside the arc of the prop. Initially, all these weapons were machine guns, but later the wing root and wing guns were swapped out for 20mm cannon. There was an initial run of various prototypes, all indicated with a V, where different size wings and other features were tried out, but the aircraft was clearly a winner and it was time to start building the 190 in earnest. Production 109s were built both in Wackerwolf factories in Bremen and a 99-acre facility in Marienburg, a total of 23,823 aircraft of all variants were constructed, including the 69 TA-152s, which were built very late in the war, and were named for tank, and were an upgrade of the 190. 
Just to compare, 34,109s were built during the war. Once the 190 was introduced, it fought everywhere German forces went and in many different roles. Here are some highlights. The FW-190 arrived on the Western Front in August 1941. And in the beginning, the Allied pilots it took on didn't know what they were up against. Some even thought that this new radial engine fighter were Curtis P-36 Mohawks that the Luftwaffe had lifted from the French and repainted in their own colors. But this was no Mohawk. The new fighter was superior to the Spitfire, the top RAF fighter at the time, in all manners except turning radius. The 190 had the Spitfire beat in terms of rate of roll and pure straight-line speed at low altitude. The 190 also outgunned the Spitfire in terms of firepower. The Luftwaffe gained air superiority over the Channel front in no small part due to the 190. Now, at some point, the 190 got the nickname of Butcher Bird. Now, I have to confess right now that I had this all wrong. I thought that this name had been coined by Allied pilots who were getting shot up by this bad bird and that this term was just an exercise in alliteration. You know, Butcher Bird. Turns out that it was the Luftwaffe that named their own plane after a bird called the Verger. In English, this bird is called the Shrike. Now, the scientific classification for the Shrike is Lanius, which is Latin for Butcher. And this innocent-looking little bird lives up to its name. Shrikes are known to catch insects and small animals and then impale them on thorns or any other sharp point, including the sharp spikes on barbed wire fences. They use these spikes to tear their victim's flesh into small, manageable bits. They're also known to leave their prey crucified on these spikes for several days for later consumption. The loggerhead shrike will kill small animals using their small beaks to stab their necks and then violently shake them to death. Allied pilots, especially bomber pilots, would soon learn that the butcher birds had been aptly named. Operation Cerebus occurred on the 12th of February 1942 when the Kriegsmarine's small battleships Scharnhorst and Gneisenau and the heavy cruiser Prince Eugen did their channel dash to break out through the English Channel and the Dover Strait. During this daylight operation, the Luftwaffe provided continuous fighter cover against RAF attacks. The Butcher Birds claimed seven kills and six probables in exchange for four FW-190s. During Operation Jubilee, the Allied raid on Dieppe, in August 1942, Jagerschwader, JG-2 and JG-26 were able to bring 115 190s to the day's aerial battles. The RAF sent over 300 fighters, including Hurricanes, Spitfire 5, Spitfire Mark 4Bs, RAF, Allison engine Mustangs, and even some new Hawker Typhoons. At the end of the day, 25 FW-190s had been lost, but in return, they claimed 61 of the 106 Allied aircraft lost that day. 
Soon the 190s were showing their versatility when they were configured as Jagdbombers or fighter bombers. These Yabos would sweep in low across the channel, hot and fast, and hit shipping and ports in southeast England. The RAF was almost powerless to stop these high-speed, low-altitude, below-the-radar attacks. As soon as RAF fighters were scrambled to intercept them, the intruders were already gone. In April 1943, the Yabo units were merged into Schnellkampfgeschwader 10, I've been practicing that one, and began switching to night operations. Perhaps here was where the 190 first started running into serious difficulty when tangling with the de Havilland Mosquito night fighters. The unit's first mission on the night of 16 to 17 April was especially bad and actually downright embarrassing when four 190s during their attack on London got lost. They thought that they had crossed the channel back into France, but were actually still over merry old England. They then tried to land at RAF West Malling. Fieldwebel Otter Bestold landed first, and he was captured right away. Lieutenant Fritz Setzer landed a couple of minutes later, then realized what was going on, and attempted to take off again, but his aircraft was destroyed in the attempt. Setzer surrendered to Wing Commander Peter Townsend, who, if you have watched the Netflix series The Crown, was the RAF officer who had that romance with Princess Margaret. The third 190 crashed short of the runway, but the pilot was captured, just suffering a concussion. The fourth 190 crashed and killed the pilot. Capturing a fully intact 190 was a boon, and it was subsequently evaluated by the RAF. In mid-1943, the RAF's building night bomber offensive caused 190s to be called on to defend the Reich at night. The Nachtjagerschwader were finding their night fighter Messerschmitt BF-110 and Junkers Ju-88 to be becoming outpaced and hunted themselves by British de Havilland Mosquito night fighters. The RAF's use of window or small strips of aluminum foil cut out and dropped to scramble the radar images meant that the Luftwaffe system of ground-based control was disrupted, and so the wild sow or wild boar technique was adopted, allowing the FW-190s free reign to fly over bombed and burning areas to see if they could locate bombers using the light from the ground fires below. If possible, these aircraft were modified with exhaust dampers and blind-flying radio equipment, and some carried radar equipment. Meanwhile, increased USAAF activity over the Reich during the day demanded a response by the 190 squadrons. Although the 190 was already a very robust aircraft that packed a powerful punch, going up against the combat boxes of tough B-17s and B-24s and facing the hundreds of 50 caliber bullets and increased numbers of Allied escort fighters required enhancements for the Butcher Bird. Conversions allowed the 190 to carry two more 20mm and then 30mm cannon under the wings. 1.2 inches of armored glass was added to the canopy. The two synchronized twin cow mount 7.92mm were swapped out 
for a double-sized MG17 machine gun with 13 millimeter, that's 0.51 caliber, MG131 guns. Some were fitted with rails for underwing rockets. All of this extra stuff was making the 190 very heavy and cumbersome. Some were given the GM1 nitrous oxide boost system to allow the BMW 801 engine to increase its performance at high altitude. Even so, the 190s that were configured as bomber killers weren't well able to protect themselves against Allied escort, and so required escort themselves in the form of BF-109s that would give them cover while the 190s focused on the bombers. If there was one real disadvantage to the 190, it was that it wasn't great at high altitude. With more and more battles occurring at great height, and with the threat of the B-29 looming, although it was never actually deployed in Europe, Kurt Tank decided that serious measures were needed in order to adapt the 190 for height climbing. First, he decided that the BMW 801 radial engine just wasn't going to cut it, and after a period of searching, settled on the Yumo 213, which was a V-12 liquid-cooled aircraft engine. It's interesting that this fighter, which at first was notable as being a radial-powered fighter, would not only switch engines, but to a completely different cylinder configuration. But the Yumo 213 was certainly an impressive power plant. Firstly, it was designed as a crafty, or power egg system, which allowed engines to be easily swapped with just four bolts and attachments. The version that was mainly installed in the 190 had a three-speed, two-stage, intercooled supercharger that delivered 1,750 horsepower or 2,050 horsepower with a 50-50 water methanol injection boost. It also used a pressurized cooling system, which was so efficient that it allowed the engine to run much harder and used much less coolant than the usual atmospheric type. To understand this, think of how a pressure cooker can operate much hotter and with much less cooking liquid than a pot of boiling water. In order to house the more lengthy Yumo 213, the 190's nose had to be extended, and in order to maintain balance, the tail had to be subsequently stretched. This version was numbered FW190D, and so was nicknamed as Long-Nosed Dora, Langnasen Dora, or just Dora. Pilots were initially suspicious of the funny-looking version with the different engine, but their fears were soon allayed. Firstly, they were comforted by how this aircraft was so well-armored, with 14mm plate for the pilot's head and shoulders, 8mm plate for the seat back and surrounding cockpit, and even armored rings around the cowling to protect the engine. You'd think that all this weight would affect performance, but it did not. The Dora could outclimb and outdive its radial-engined predecessor easily, and had a great turning rate, even at speed. The pilots who flew the FW-190D9 felt that it was the finest propeller-driven fighter available to the Luftwaffe during the entire war, and some considered it more than a match for even the P-51D Mustang. Doras were sometimes used as top cover, 
used to protect the ME-262 jets as they took off or landed. Between 650 and 700 Doras were built before the occupation of Fuckelwolf factories by Allied forces brought production to an end. Although the 190 continued to be a worthy opponent to the rising number of Allied aircraft from mid-1944, no matter how good it or its pilots were, they were being overwhelmed. On D-Day, German fighters of all types flew just 760 sorties, compared to an Allied total of 14,000. In the several weeks of fighting over Normandy, 200 FW-190s and 100 pilots were lost. On the Eastern Front, the 190 was a valued weapon and was considered better suited to the often primitive conditions of that front. It handled well on the ground, and its wide undercarriage made it more stable than the 109. It could absorb more damage than the BF-109 and survived to get back to base due to its radial engine. One Soviet pilot, Nikolai G. Golodnikov, said that German pilots relied on their FW-190 radial engines as a shield, making head-on attacks in air-to-air combat. However, they soon stopped this technique and would evade frontal attacks against the Soviets' P-39 Cobras, whose 37mm cannon would punch right through that engine shield, and even one hit was enough to kill. On the initial invasion and offensive on the Eastern Front, Increasing numbers of 190s were used in the air supremacy role. As the Wehrmacht exhausted itself in the attack, the 190s were called upon more and more for Yabo fighter-bomber missions, both hitting ground targets with bombs and strafing attacks and fighting off Soviet fighters. Later on, with the Red Army on the advance, 190s would sortie multiple times a day, trying to stem the tide of Soviet armor. One limiting factor was fuel, which was in short supply. One desperate policy was instituted to save the precious liquid, that Luftwaffe pilots were ordered to shut down their engines immediately after landing, and their planes would be towed to and from dispersal by animals, such as oxen, instead of taxiing. It's strange to think of this modern weapon being maneuvered by this ancient manner of transportation. But desperate times were calling for desperate measures. One of these measures was the MISTL, or Mistletoe Composite Aircraft Program. This name had nothing to do with Christmas or kissing, but referred to this plant's habit of hanging out on another plant or tree. MISTL was a program where an unmanned twin-engine bomber, usually a JU-88, was loaded with a two-ton shape-charged warhead and attached to a controlling fighter that was bolted to the bomber's roof. Although BF-109s could be used also, often the attached fighter was a 190. The pilot of the fighter would control both aircraft until he arrived at the target, and then would aim and release the flying bomb and fly home, himself in his fighter. There were other code names for this program, and they're great. Beethoven Garat, or Beethoven Device, is a bit dull, but you've got to love Hunkapak, which is piggyback, or Vadi and Sun, Daddy and Son. The last version of the 190 was actually known as the TA-152. At some point it was decided to name planes after designers, 
And in the same way that the BF-109 became the ME-109, the new 152 was named TA. The TA-152 was quite similar to the Dora, but to aid in reaching higher altitudes, the cockpit was pressurized. A NOR 300-10 air compressor provided the pressure, and the canopy was sealed by a circular tube which was inflated by a compressed air bottle. Armament was heavy, so that a quick burst would be enough to dispatch anything that got in its sights. It had a 30mm Mark 108 motor cannon firing through the propeller hub and two 20mm MG 151-20 cannons located in the wing roots. The TA-152 Junkers UMO 213E1 V12 inverted liquid-cooled piston engine had both a GM1 nitrous oxide boost and MW50 water methanol boost. They could be used individually or both be cut in for short periods of time with an extra burst of speed when needed. Kurt Tank needed both when he was flying an unarmed TA-152H in late 1944 to a meeting and was warned by ground controllers that two P-51 Mustangs were on his tail. Tank applied full power and kicked in the boosters until they, the Mustangs, were no more than two dots on the horizon. Only about 69 TA-152s were built before production ceased. One of the last major operations involving 190s was Operation Bodenplatt, or Baseplate. This attack was finally launched on New Year's Day, January 1945, after a long series of delays. The objective of Bodenplatt was to attack Allied air bases in the Low Countries and to regain air superiority during the Battle of the Bulge. The hope was that the German army and Waffen-SS forces could then resume their advance without harassment from above. Although the operation was a tactical surprise and did destroy many Allied aircraft on the ground, it was somewhat a pyrrhic victory, as these aircraft were quickly replaced by the Allies' fire hose of a supply chain. On the other hand, any short-term advantage by the Luftwaffe was outweighed by the loss of 143 pilots killed or missing, with 70 captured and 21 wounded, including some of the cream of the Air Arms leadership. It was the largest single-day loss for the Luftwaffe, General der Jagdflieger Adolf Galland said of the operation, We sacrificed our last substance. Pilots Eric Rudolfer was born on the 1st of November 1917 in the Kingdom of Saxony of the German Empire. He was trained as an automobile metalsmith, but joined the Luftwaffe as an aircraft engine mechanic in 1936. In 1938, he started flight training and then specialized as a bomber pilot and then as a Zerstorer or heavy fighter pilot. After transferring to Jagdschwader II, he flew BF-109s and got his first kill, which was a Curtis Hawk 75 on the 14th of May 1940, and he claimed eight more kills during the Battle of France. He fought in the Battle of Britain, and by the time he got his Knight's Cross of the Iron's Cross, he was up to 19 victories. Two weeks later, he and a wingman attacked and sank a submarine with bombs off the Isle of Portland. 
During the next six months, he and his unit was engaged in defending against RAF raids, and then he was promoted to Staffelkapten, squadron leader, and the unit converted to the FW-190. Rudorfer flew in the aforementioned Operation Cerebus and defended against the Allied landings at Dieppe. In November 1942, Rudorfer's unit was transferred to the Mediterranean Theater to help deal with Operation Torch, the Anglo-American invasion of French North Africa. In early February 1943, Rudorfer shot down eight RAF aircraft in one 32-minute melee. On another day of that month, he claimed seven more kills. In April 1943, Rudorfer was appointed Gruppenkommander, Group Commander, and took over 4th Group of Jagdschwader 54, the 54th Fighter Wing, on the Eastern Front. Amazingly, during his first mission in that theater on the 24th of August 1943, he brought down five Soviet aircraft in four minutes. On the 6th of November, he was credited with 13 victories in seven minutes. In the winter of 1944, he gave up flying the 190 in transition to the ME-262, which he used to knock down 12 more planes, and he finished the war with an incredible 222 victories. He had flown more than a thousand combat missions and had been shot down by AA and enemy fighters 16 times. He had parachuted to safety nine times. You'd think that perhaps all of that he would have had enough of flying. But no, after the war he moved to Australia and flew DC-2s and DC-3s. Later on he worked for Pan Am and then went back to Germany to work for the Luftfahrtbundesamt, or Federal Aviation Office. He lived to the ripe old age of 98, passing away in 2016. When he died, he was the last living recipient of the Knight's Cross of the Iron Cross with oak leaves and swords. So what about Kurt Tank? He moved to Argentina in late 1946, along with many others from the Fucka Wolf team. While there, he secured a position at the Fabrica Militaire de Aviones. Tank dusted off one of his previous designs, the Fucka Wolf TA-183, which had never made it beyond the mock-up stage during the war, and they built several prototypes of the IAE Pulki II, which was an Argentinian-built fighter that the Perón government wanted to build to replace their British Gloucester Meteors. However, when the Perón government fell, the project was cancelled and Tank and his team were forced to leave. Then he moved to India, where he worked on rockets and satellites, and designed the Hindustan Marut fighter bomber, which was the first military aircraft ever constructed in India. Tank moved back to Germany in the 1970s and worked as a consultant for Messerschmitt Bolkau Blom. He died in Munich in 1983. At 28 examples, there are actually quite a few surviving 190s, and they are located in multiple countries, including Germany, France, Norway, Serbia, South Africa, United Kingdom, and 11 of them in the United States. Several are airworthy. So, what can we say was the theme of this episode? I think it has to be that Tank and his team built what they had set out to build, a loyal cavalry horse for the Luftwaffe. 
the 190 did what it was supposed to do and more. And though no aircraft is perfect, it had no serious vices. During the course of its operational life, it was updated and adapted to keep up and even surpass the state-of-the-art Allied planes. If asked to do the job of a fighter bomber or night fighter or high-altitude bomber killer, it was adaptable for those roles, and it did them well. Even the Allied pilots who flew it had a wholehearted respect for the Butcher Bird and consider it an equal to their own best planes. And to earn the respect of your opponent, well, I guess it just doesn't get much better than that.